It's in the hands of the jury. It's the case that has had global attention in Oakland County Circuit Jury this morning, dealing with a legal issue that's never been debated in the country before. The jury has been asked to decide if Jennifer Crumley should be convicted of involuntary manslaughter and the deaths of four students at Oxford High School. It's a case we've followed so closely here on WJR. We've had lots of interviews on this topic. In fact, we've got Todd Flood coming up in a few minutes to talk a little more about the ins and outs of this case. Was it proven? Was it not proven? Uh, just a closer look at what's happening in the courtroom up there. We haven't uh, seen any action. Usually what happens when a jury gets a uh, case like this at the very beginning, um, they take they do a lot of um, housekeeping, if you will. They have to elect the jury foreman. There's a lot of uh, talking at the very beginning. But we'll get a clearer idea of that from Todd Flood. We are here today on The Focus Show. We hope Paul W. Smith has a peaceful and restful few days off. We're glad that he's able to do that. Dave Rieger joining me. Good afternoon, Dave. Hey, Marie. How are you? Hey, any thoughts on that uh, Crumley trial? What are your feelings about it? Did you see the closing at all last Friday? I I did not see. I did not catch it uh, last Friday, Mm -hmm. but it's it's, it's very interesting what's going on. it's like kind of unprecedented, kind of in a territory that we've not seen before. Nope. And uh, I think that a lot of questions here are, I'd, I'm going to get into this with Todd, but talking certainly about a lot about uh, what it means to be a parent, where your uh, responsibility begins and ends. Um, a lot of us believe your responsibility to your kids never ends. There's never really a line uh, where responsibility for your kids ends. So um We'll get more on that, and we'll talk a little bit more about that coming up. Danielle Mason also on si- alongside this afternoon. We're glad she could join us. Uh, we're also going to be talking a little bit later on in the uh, first hour here of uh, Focus that the residents of the city of Dearborn have come under a scathing attack, an opinion piece by a nonprofit institute published in the Wall Street Journal, says that the city's citizens celebrated the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel And they've openly demonstrated to support for Hamas. Now, some of that is true, but this entire uh, piece in the Wall Street Journal on Friday went on to make other claims that a lot of people have taken a huge exception to. And we're going to talk a little more about that coming up with Debbie Dingle, a congresswoman from Michigan's 6th District. This is her district here. So I know that we're going to have a lot to say about that. Uh, Dave Rieger, do you like to fly? Are you a good flyer? Yeah. Nervous? Are you a nervous no, I, flyer? No, no, I like I like to fly. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah. not a nervous flyer. Danielle, no. are you a nervous flyer? She obviously she is. She's terrified even of flying on this flight. <laughs> Danielle, nervous flyer. Me? Am I, yeah. No, no. I love to fly. You I love mean, to fly. I actually okay. would prefer to drive, but but I do like to fly. Yeah. See. All right. So I'm a nervous flyer. Always have been. I've been everywhere, but I'm still a nervous flyer. And this story just makes us all take a little pause. There's a new problem that was found during the production of these 737 MAX jets. So these were the same jets that the the this door flew off during a flight of several weeks ago. Now there's another problem, and it came to light in a memo between some of the employees at the uh, at Boeing. About 50 planes have not yet been delivered. So these are these are having to do with those uh, planes. 
and an employee at Boeing said that a supplier notified them that two holes might not have been drilled exactly to Boeing's specifications, according to this memo. So while this, uh, the company says that now this could uh, cause a problem, a potential condition, but it's not a, an immediate flight safety issue. So all of the 737s can continue to f- operate safely. So would either one of you look to see if you were flying your next flight on a 737? No. No, no you wouldn't no, even look. No. no. It's not that worrisome. Yeah, no, no. I would not. Uh, I, and, and instead, of, and I would rather fly than drive. Uh, to get to to get to places, because if if I'm if you have only so much time that you have off, you might I'd like to get to where I'm supposed to get to instead of taking a couple of days to drive and then a couple of days to drive back. I'd rather fly. Well, it depends on you know it depends on the distance. Certainly, it takes a couple of days to get to Florida and right. a, I mean that's right. a real a road trip is a real commitment, right? I mean you've yeah. got to have you've got to have your yourself geared up. It's like going into a big game. You've got to have have yourself geared up. You know, flying, though, has become such an ordeal for so many people. Uh, we took a short flight last fall, uh, late last fall, in fact, to New York. That's not a that's not a big flight or a long flight, but it was just so difficult getting through the airport, getting on the flight, getting get in, getting into the plane, getting your luggage put where it's supposed. I mean, it just and both my husband and I are very tall. So there's that issue. We always have to make sure we have bulkhead seats or and then there's those arrangements that have to be made. It's it, it, it's just my husband almost didn't want to fly and I really had to talk him into it. Had to talk him into getting on the plane so that we could go and get there quickly rather than than waiting. So I I, I don't know, Dave. Sometimes it's just such a pain to fly. Right. But. Yeah, I I mean, I just came back obviously from the West Coast and I had to make a couple connections going there and coming back and uh you know, well, one of the flights I got to uh, upgrade, I guess you could call it an upgrade to an exit row just because you got more. Oh, yeah, just much because you better. got more leg room. Yeah, much and, better. And uh, I, I enjoyed that. Uh, as long as I can get the seat that I want, which is an aisle seat. Yeah. I don't like the middle. I do not like the window. I like being on the aisle. As long as I can get the aisle seat, then flying is not that big of a deal. I usually do not check bags. I usually try to get away with carrying on, you know, uh, you know, take the take one like a backpack for underneath, and then uh, and like I carry on overhead in the compartment. But uh, what I found was that they like I had a separate small little bag with me, and they threatened to make me check the bag if I didn't like stuff the small bag into the carry on while I was going. You know, about to get on the plane. So they're they're really starting to crack so to crack down on that. You had an addition to your backpack. You well, had a correct. Bag. I had like a small oh, little. Yeah, you can't I, do I, that. I was really small. I mean, I know, it, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. Like in Detroit, but coming back from in San Francisco, they were like, "That nah, we're not having any of this. You need to either." And I and I and I get a little. I get crazy when I have to check stuff because. Uh, then I, you know, I was always afraid it's going to, especially if you're connecting, I'm afraid it's going to get lost. Well, there's that. And then plus you just hadn't anticipated that. So there's just no, you know, you right. just didn't. Yeah. See, I'm a Girl Scout when I fly. If they tell me I can carry on one bag, it's one bag. Now, I may have another bag inside that bag, but I carry on only one bag. Right. So, you know, you, there's that. And I'm with you. I'm an aisle seat person myself. Aren't yeah. you allowed to have a purse and then yeah. a bag? No. 
No. Oh, the purse has got to go into the yeah. yeah you oh, yeah. the whole time yeah. I thought right. personal item and then your carry on. Have you ever actually had them take your bag and like put it in that little test little thing to see yes. if it fits yes. in there? That, yes. That, yes. That, that I, yes. I think that is total uh, nonsense because spirit, spirit yeah. will get you on that. I think yeah. that's total Ooh. nonsense because I think it's I think it's like I think it's like a carnival game. I think it's smaller. <laughs> I think it's smaller than a, than a regular carry on, and they're gonna make you check that bag. Oh, yeah, just I think to, so too. Just, just to keep the overhead, uh, you know, open because so many people want to put their stuff on the in the overhead and not deal with checking. Yeah, I. You know what? I fl- look. I I flew for many years, so I couldn't. I don't understand why this whole thing now has gone to the carry on. But then if you check it, it costs you. I mean, I, I just don't. Why can't we just go back to the days where you could have your luggage on the plane and it could get to destination A or B and you just got your stuff back? I, I don't I don't get that. It's it's crazy really to fly. See, I rest my case. There you go. Speaking of resting your case, Todd Flood, managing partner at Flood Law, joining us after the break. We're going to talk a little bit about the Crumley case uh, in Oakland County and what might be happening in that jury room today. Stay with us. At this hour, a jury in Oakland County is deciding whether Jennifer Crumley is a negligent, self-absorbed mother who ignored her teenage son's pleas for help or... Was she a busy mother who was just doing the best that she could to take care of her son and was devastated when he took a gun, which she does admit she and her uh, and her husband bought for him to school and killed four fellow classmates. 45-year-old Jennifer Crumley pleading not guilty to four counts of involuntary manslaughter in her uh, in connection to her role in that mass shooting. Todd Flood. Uh, a partner, managing partner at Flood Law joining us. Todd, what do you think's going on inside that jury room right now? Well, I think uh, they've probably uh, started the deliberations. They've gone through some of the evidence. They'll probably have some questions uh, back and forth. I, I'm sure you'll see one or two uh, that'll come out to the court for an explanation or definition of something that is usually inevitable. Um, and uh, I, I would imagine that they'll wade through certain aspects of the case. Um, I, I think if it were me sitting in the jury, and I think Karen, uh, the prosecutor uh, kind of played this uh, in a common sense way, I think they would start with the epicenter. I think they would start on November 30th. Look at that day of when the parents last had contact. Uh, with the shooter in that room. How long did it last? What was the drawing? Did the drawing, did they really care? Did they have any concern about it? Um, you know, I think that's, then they'll go backwards and they'll start asking how many times were the parents forewarned that there was problems and just juxtapose, you know, or just keep on coming back to that, to that day where they sat in the uh, deliberation or in the, uh, in the uh, principal's office. Do you think that putting uh, Jennifer Crumley on the stand was a good idea? They didn't call anybody else. They just called her and she spoke for herself with a lot of, you know, a lot of people want to hear from the defendant. But of course, uh, defense attorneys are not thrilled with that idea. Do you think she uh, do you think she did herself any favors? No, no. I think her statements were self-serving. I think that um, uh, you know, there was obviously some impeachment uh, testimony that showed she uh, she was 
you know, at some point in time, uh, I remember Marie uh, being told by the chief judge of the Wayne County uh, Courthouse, uh, my mentor, Tim Kenny, at some point in time, the truth matters, right? So she wasn't very truthful. And I thought she gave a lot of self-serving statements. So I don't think it did her, did her any favors. Um, and then to say, and then to say, and, and the question, if you could turn back the hands of time, she's not changing anything. Just, I think, baffles uh, everyone with common sense. Um, so I think her pathology uh, was, uh, I think what she did up on the stand did not serve her well. Um, and clearly, clearly, there had to be a lot of raised eyebrows when her testimony came out. When she said I wouldn't change anything, I thought it was interesting because her, her own attorney, right? That was on the question from her own attorney when she was asked, yeah, that. am I right? right? Which right. was kind of yeah. like, I don't know that I would have asked that because that, of course, you'd say I wouldn't change anything. Why would you say something different? I don't know. Uh, but I oh. will I will say this to you, Todd. She did say, I wish that he had shot us that day. Right? Yeah, I think that's just such a bizarre answer. As opposed to, I wish I would have never given him the gun, or I wish I would have taken the gun away. I wish the four people that died were still alive and that we would have taken one just one step. Think about it from this standpoint. You're sitting in that room. You're sitting in the principal's office, and your uh, uh, son drew this picture where there's a gun identical to the one you gave him, and there's blood everywhere, and the, the uh, images don't stop, and a person is shot. And a counselor says you need to get him professional help. I would have bet dimes the donuts here. You would have called work and said, you know what? I have to call in because I'm going to take my son in right now because uh, there's a crisis going on. That would be I, that would be ordinary. That wouldn't be extraordinary. That would be ordinary for someone to do that. So I to say I wish he would turn the gun on me. I found uh, somewhat really odd when you get all these injured people. All right. So the day of the, the uh, shooting, when she was, when the, the question really was raised, you know, you should take your son home. They, the defense made a point over and over that the trained professionals in this case didn't say to the two parents, look, you, you got to take your son home. This is, this is serious. Now, whether you want to make the argument that there was enough evidence there for a reasonable person to make that you know, come to that conclusion. Let's put that aside. They do make a good point that the professionals there, the counselors didn't say to him, look, say to them, you need to take this child home. Well, think about that for a second. The trained professional, what information did he have? What knowledge did he have? Mm. A trained professional is only going to give you based on what he sees, right? And mind you, there was, I, I really would have eviscerated that guy in the stand, but the trained professional didn't give him the gun. The trained professional didn't know he had a handgun that was identical to the photograph, uh, to the one in the picture. So he's coming with a limited deck. Could you imagine, all right, hey, by the way, I locked him out of the house the night before. By the way, he's had some disturbances in the past of mental issues and crises. By the way, we have a gun that's identical to this one here in the photograph. Mm -hmm. Would you like to know that trained professional? Yeah, of mm -hmm. course. Mm -hmm. So she didn't tell him. So that, that's, I mean, wouldn't you want to know, 
kick everyone out of the room. I want to talk to my son for a second. Uh, where's the gun? Yeah. Uh, where, where, where is it? Is that extraordinary? Is that something like sister, you know, a, a, a sainthood? No, that's just an ordinary move of someone that has a son. We have a responsibility. The law is clear in the state of Michigan. We have a duty. We have a duty of responsibility to basically protect others when we know there could be a potential of harm to others or to himself. And to neglect that, um, I think, was shown here. Uh, I thought the defense's closing was interesting because what Shannon Smith did in her closing, she was a defense attorney, she used this tact. And I can imagine that there were some people on the jury that related to this. She said that can a parent really be responsible for everything their their child does, especially when it's not foreseeable? I think we've all asked ourselves as parents that question. Uh, Am I responsible for everything this human does out of my sight? I mean, that's a pretty big question, Todd. And I think that, I mean, it was a little, uh, Shannon Smith used some, bizarre examples of that but she kept saying oh well you know I've done this I've done this I've done this and I wonder if that didn't get through to some of those jury members that's what that's what scares me to some extent because I would have objected as the prosecutor to that very point because that's called jury nullification and jury nullification is when you try to take something outside of the facts and outside of the evidence and you try to influence jurors to look somewhere else. And that's a policy thing. I think, you know, it it it, it should be and it the rule is is that you, you know, the rule is you focus on the facts and the law that are within this case. And uh, you know, examples that are analogous to this case uh, can be used, but when you're trying to, you know, um talk about and every person, we don't prosecute people for crimes of third persons. But mm-hmm. if you gave your son the car keys and you knew he was drinking and intoxicated as a minor and didn't have a license and he went out and killed somebody, uh, would you be held accountable? Of course you would be mm-hmm. because you're the one that gave him the vehicle to go out and do this, knowing he, you know, something really bad could happen. So. At what, and down that continuum, down that, that line, at what point do you stop? We would all agree that we can't, you know, give uh, uh, the instrumentality of death to someone that we know is predisposed to use it. Just keep on going down and, and say, okay, is it okay to give the gun to a person if you train them and teach them safety? Todd, we're and, out of time. You know, Todd, we're out of time. This is, yeah. uh, we love talking with you. You're full of information. We appreciate your insights today. We'll talk again for sure. I know we'll be conversing again on this yeah. topic. Stay Thanks with so much. Thank you, well. Todd Flood. Stay with us here on Focus. We'll be right back. The Wall Street Journal facing criticism over an op-ed piece it published on Friday in which the city of Dearborn is referred to as America's jihad capital, saying that people there side with Hamas and the ongoing crisis between Israel and Gaza. So was this a valid piece of commentary or was it a hit job designed to inflame tensions and hatred right here in our own backyard? 
Congresswoman Debbie Dingell from Michigan's 6th District is joining us to talk a little bit about this today. Good afternoon, Congresswoman. Marie, how are you? It's always good to talk to you. It's sure it's good to talk with you as well. I'm sure you'd like to be talking about something else, but you can't avoid this particular uh, story today for sure. What were your first thoughts when you read this? You know, first of all, I want to tell you how I heard about it. Um, I heard about it because I go to this, uh, I, I love this group. It's an old-fashioned kind of Quaker group. Dexter Forum, uh, where people of all different opinions, et cetera, get together every other week to talk about issues. And a fairly conservative gentleman there who used to live in Dearborn said, did you see the hit piece in the Wall Street Journal calling Dearborn the death of the world? And I went, no, and went and looked for it. And it is these kinds of pieces, quite frankly, that are stirring up a lot of the hate in the world, pitting people against each other. And I, I did find the piece very, very concerning. You're, every city has people of, you know, different opinions. Some express them more stronger, but I sure didn't say, say that everybody that lives where Terry Nichols was, was somebody that was evil when he bombed and it was an absolutely horrific thing that happened mm-hmm. uh we had the oklahoma bombing bombing and we've got to be very very careful dearborn has i lived there for almost 40 years as you know and its citizens and residents are were my friends my neighbors and are really good caring people in fact the mayor of dearborn had to call for increased security uh, at local mosques because over the weekend because of this Wall Street Journal op-ed, because as we know, people act on things like this. That That is not out of the realm of possibility to say that. I think what concerned me about this op-ed piece was that it didn't further any understanding of anything. It You know, usually a columnist or an op-ed piece will give you something to think about and maybe give you some insight into someone who maybe opposes your or is in opposition to your viewpoint, but at least you can read it and you can gain some understanding. And I, I don't know, that didn't happen here at all. You know, no, it did not. It was just, it, quite frankly, it was not fed full of hate. And that's what we got to start standing up against. I, I think there are a lot of people like me I do believe Israel's got a right to exist, and I think what happened, what Hamas did, what and the, the, what they did that day was a terrorist act. But I also think that so many of us see what's happening in Gaza. So many people in Dearborn and other parts of my district in Northville and Canton and Ann Arbor have family that have been killed have families that are stranded there. I can't tell you the casework that I'm doing trying to help people escape. 85% of the people there don't have homes. 12,000 children have been killed, 30,000 innocent people. It's horrific, and I don't want to see any more children die. I don't care what faith or background they have. And people are hurting. They're hurting because people that care about issues, they care about religions and cultures are so much under fire right now. Uh, but we have to say, Congresswoman, that in this article, they did, you know, it's a fact that there were pro-Hamas rallies in Dearborn. Uh, there are individuals who are uh, very pro-Hamas uh, in uh, in Dearborn. 
and who are not afraid to talk about that openly. And even in the, in, relig- in mosques and so on, that is often spoken of. So how, what do you say to people who point to that and say, but look, there's, there's, there are items in this article that were factually correct? Look, I stand against violence any place, anywhere. I stand up to hate wherever I see it, period. And I think that all of us have to. I have condemned what Hamas has done, and many others have. But that doesn't make the city of Dearborn condoning of the innocent people uh, 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 that were killed by the Hamas attack. Hamas attack. So I think this is a city that's very, very, very torn apart because so many people have family over there. I'm, I, I, but I also have Jewish families in my district that have uh, people that were hurt. I, 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 look, you have to be so careful right now, Mars. I, I have been protested by people on all sides. It, um, and I, I think that we really, everybody's got a right to freedom of speech. They've got a right to express their viewpoint. But I, I think we all need to think about how easy it is to incite hate, to incite vitriolic language, to bully people, and quite frankly, to incite violence. And it's got to stop. We all need to stand up the hate wherever we see it, whatever form we see it, against whoever it is, and try to find ways to bring people together to have conversations, to share each other's perspectives. Because... We are really at an incredible place that scares me to death. But you must, um, we have to have room for opposing viewpoints. We have to have room for uh, commentary. I mean, it's part of what we do in journalism is to bring commentary, is to bring different viewpoints. So we have to have that. So I'm just wondering where you think this crossed the line specifically. Look, it condemned the whole city. Of, uh, of of Dearborn, it said. I mean, it really implied that all of its people were evil. That they condoned the innocent killing of people, and that is not who the people of Dearborn are. You know, I, I'm going to tell you something. That this is the anniversary this week of John's death. This community got me through John's death. I, I I just I know both sides. I've seen people. I remember 9/11. I remember when people came together, Jewish community, Arab American community, Christians, Catholics, Blacks, Hispanics came together to make sure that there was not, uh, 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 people didn't target the community of Dearborn for what others did in the bombing or in the airplane attack on 9-11. We have to be very careful right now on how easy it is to fan the fires of hate, and that people are using this hate to divide us. We need to remember that in this country, united we stand, divided we fall, and there are very deliberate people trying to divide us, to fan these fires of hate, and you have to be very, very careful about what you say about each other and to each other, because social media is making it, it just spread so quickly. 
and it lives forever on the internet. That that is so we can have all these nice rosy conversations about something like this, but this will stand on the internet forever. Congresswoman Debbie Dingle, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to talk to us today here on WJR, offering your insights here into this article at the Wall Street Journal. We appreciate it. Have a great afternoon, Congresswoman. Take care. Bye-bye. We'll continue here on WJR. In fact, we'll go to the Middle East, talk a little bit about uh, the increased bombing on Hamas targets when we come back. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan yesterday did not rule out strikes inside Iran after the U.S. launched airstrikes uh, Friday, late Friday, targeting Iranian proxies in Iraq and Syria This all in retaliation for the killing of three American soldiers. Jonathan Savage, Fox News correspondent, WJR contributor, calling in to chat with us a little bit about this particular story. Welcome again, Jonathan. We appreciate your time today. Hi, Marie. Good to talk to you. Let's talk a little bit about what uh, exactly happened in terms of these strikes. Who, where Where were those strikes targeted? Yeah, these were targeted in Iraq and Syria, and the focus were Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard and its affiliated militias. As we know, Iran backs and funds and trains various groups right across the Middle East in order to carry out its foreign policies by proxy, and they have caused all sorts of problems since October 7th, since Hamas attacked Israel, and Israel went to war with Hamas in response. Uh, We're told that the U.S strikes uh, went for headquarters, command and control centers, weapon storage, training, logistics support. Uh, And what the White House says is that the airstrikes are just the beginning, not the end of its response to Iran. Uh, The UK Defense Secretary, uh, Grant Shapps, uh, said that these were joint strikes. So we had help here. Is that correct? The joint strikes that the UK were involved in were the strikes against the Houthis. They Ah. are another Iran-backed group in Yemen. They've been targeting shipping in the Red Sea. Yeah, it's been a busy weekend Ah, for the US military um, with with these uh, airstrikes on multiple fronts. Um, Though you mention it, actually, the United States did have some help uh, in the airstrikes against uh, the the, uh, militias in Iraq and Syria. Um, Jordanian F-16 fighters uh, took part in the strikes in Syria. Um, if you remember, the, the attack that killed three U.S. soldiers was on a military base that was situated in Jordan on January 28th. The Jordan took part uh, partly because it was a, a violation of international law when these groups attacked the U.S. base and also because Jordan has been battling these organizations for some time. Uh, you know, I, I this just comes to my mind and I have to ask you about it. Uh, But I don't have a lot of the details. I was watching uh, national news, I think it was last night, and I saw this uh, piece that they aired. It was clearly uh, done by uh, Iran, uh, when it had an interpretation, uh, you know, English uh, interpretation to this. But they were showed a lot of video of a lot of these airstrikes, and they were talking about how this could have... Uh, If this continues, this could have very deep implications uh, for uh, for the world, for international peace, if you will. So this is a fine line that uh, the United States is walking with these airstrikes. I mean, they want to retaliate for the three soldiers who were killed. But on the other hand, 
every every day we talk about this widening conflict in the Middle East and what does it mean for the United States and its allies? The the region is Maria a powder keg. Um, yeah, and there are many organizations who would like to see the U.S. drawn in even further in order to turn it into a sort of regional or, mm-hmm. or, or holy war against the United States. Um, and the U.S. is very careful. They're trying to calibrate the response not to escalate the situation um, whereby the people turn on them because they have, have 3,000 troops out there and they have a lot of uh, foreign policy goals they want to achieve in the Middle East. The U.S. has, has decent relations with the governments of a number of these countries. But within these countries, there are people, individuals, groups of individuals who are hostile to the United States, who don't want 3,000 troops, for example, in Iraq or in Syria. Um, so it is, it's a balancing act. Um, Iran, their response to the U.S. was to say, uh, the, the airstrikes was to say that it was another adventurous and strategic mistake by the U.S. Uh-huh. that will only result in increased tension and instability in the region. That's uh, I believe that's what I saw then. Yes. And you had the you had the exact words there. Very true. All these actions were kept uh, secret and these operations were kept secret. But it it seemed to me that the United States was prepared for something like this. I think that um, this is something that they're always going to be wary of. I mean, since October 7th, we have seen over 150 attacks on U.S. military facilities in Iraq and Syria and and then in Jordan. Um, And we've seen time to time the U.S. trying to counter that, attacking weapon storage, attacking facilities um, that these groups use. Um, but the deaths of the three service personnel uh, changed the, the the equilibrium a little, and the U.S. felt it had to respond mm. a, a little bit more strongly than it had done so far. Uh, all last week, you had, um, you had President Biden saying that we will respond at a time and in a manner of our choosing. What happened was the, the Defense Secretary and senior military figures presented him with some options. He chose the options that he wanted to go for. Um, he, he, they, they probably had various uh, outcomes and expectations for what would happen as a result of this. Um, so it took, they took a few days to, to come uh, to come up with their plans and to put their plans into action. Uh, Anthony Blinken is in the region today. Am I correct? Yes, he's just arrived in Saudi Arabia. Uh, he's also going to be visiting Egypt, Qatar and Israel and the West Bank. Uh, we're told his top priority is to try to get a deal between Israel and Hamas that will see the remaining 100 plus hostages released in exchange for a pause in fighting in Gaza. This is a deal that's been put together. There was a big meeting in Paris a little over a week ago with spy, top spy uh, officials, uh, CIA, Mossad, etc. Um, and they put this deal to Hamas and they're kind of waiting for Hamas's response to it. Do we even know the condition of these uh, hostages at this point? I always wonder about that this this many months in. Yeah, that's one of the concerns. There is very little reliable information uh, and Israel accuses uh, Hamas of psychological torture in the lack of information and the type of information they release about the hostages. And not so long ago, Hamas released a video of three hostages and then essentially said, tune in later to find out what happened to them. Um, oh. And what happened was the two of them had died. Uh, Hamas blamed uh, Israeli yeah. airstrikes and Israel denied that. Um, but it just sort of shows that the lack of information that comes out. And remember that a number of these hostages are very sick. Uh, and there was a deal struck uh, a few weeks ago with the intention of allowing uh, boxes of medicine in to help them.
Right, and there are Americans among those hostages too. We might might want to add, and of course, that's why Antony Blinken is is involved the way he does. Uh, one last thing before we let you go: any um, whispering or any thought here that uh, some of these airstrikes may continue? I think that it wouldn't be a surprise if they did. Um, Jake Sullivan said there would be more steps to deter the militias, and if we consider that uh, since. Friday, since these airstrikes began, the militias have attacked uh, U.S. forces three more times. Um, It wouldn't be a surprise to see the U.S. take further action. We want to thank you, Jonathan Savage, for always being such a wealth of information for us here on WJR. We appreciate your work and your insights into what's happening here in the Middle East. Again, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, uh, over the weekend, not ruling out more airstrikes inside Iran. We just asked Jonathan if he thought that was possible. And uh, we can only go by what um, the National Security Advisor uh, has said. We'll continue here on WJR. Once again, our thanks to Jonathan Savage, the Fox News correspondent and WJR contributor. Focus, your afternoon continues here on WJR. We are still standing by uh, waiting any kind of word from that Oakland County jury that's considering the fate of Jennifer Crumley. Uh, she is, of course, the mother, the uh, mother of the Oxford High School shooter. Uh, the jury weighing whether she should be convicted of involuntary manslaughter in the deaths of four students at Oxford High School. So we spoke with Todd Flood earlier in the show talking a little bit about the developments late in the trial late last week it went to the jury apps uh friday late late friday but the judge asked the jury to come back monday morning fresh and to start deliberations this morning which they did so we'll continue to watch what's happening uh out there we have dave rieger alongside this afternoon along with danielle mason dave i want to talk to you for a couple of minutes about uh earl Curtin. um he died over the weekend he was a university of detroit mercy uh basketball player. He's somebody that I remember uh, from the university at that time. He was also a player. He also played for the Detroit Pistons. This guy was an ambassador. He was well-loved by so many in the sports world. Yeah, uh, 66 years old, I think. He died suddenly on uh, Sunday, and uh, I had just heard him on the air doing a Pistons game in for Rick McCorn on Saturday, just like the day before. And, uh, yeah, very sad. you know, he was a piston for a while. He was a big star at U of D. And uh, I think he grew he, up around uh, yeah, here. And so yeah. that was why everybody, you know, people yeah. really related to him. Right. And had that deep connection to him. Yeah, that's and for I sure. think that he also uh, called a U of D game recently, too. Yeah. So and I think he would do that uh, every once in a while. I know that uh, I was reading in Tony Paul's article that uh, Dick Vitale, uh, who's on voice rest for uh, he's trying to get over his throat cancer. Uh, he, you know sent a, a letter and a message about Earl Curtin. So a uh, great guy and, um, yeah, very sad and very sudden that, uh, and I don't know if they've uh, said what exactly happened. Right, he collapsed at his home on, on Sunday. That's the, the only information that we have. But anyway, someone doing a lot of good work, using his skills as a basketball player, but, you know, parlaying that later into just so much goodwill for the city of Detroit. And so we wanted to just 
uh, make a note of that. So let's make a little bit of a, a hard right turn here and talk a little bit about the Grammys last night. We bring in our Grammys Bureau Chief, Danielle Mason. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Giving you a big title there, Danielle. Wow. So I know you watched the Grammys. I only saw highlights. I only went back and watched some of the highlights okay. last night. But I've heard nothing overall but great stuff about the Grammy show last night. It was one of the best ones they've ever done. I was watching it, and I was thinking, like, wow, they're doing a good job. Yeah, and, you know, especially since so many uh, shows, you know, so many of these award shows, first of all, they can be insufferable, Mm -hmm. but also people love to diss them, and, you know, they're kind of silly and dumb, and, and inevitably some faux pas takes place. You know, somebody says something offensive or does something offensive, mm-hmm. and then that takes away all the headlines from the event itself, and that did not happen last night. In fact, they provided some great musical experiences. And, and I also note another thing. Uh, I noticed people, older folks, uh, watching it and enjoying a lot of it, not not constantly saying, wait a minute, I don't know who that person is. I don't know who that person is. And then folks like yourself, Danielle, who are really into the young music scene, of course, really enjoying a lot of the, the newer artists that are out there. Of course, you're, you know, you're Taylor oh, you yeah. know, doing really well. I'm last Taylor night. all the way. So Trevor Noah uh, hosted. Mm. He did great. Absolutely. 100 percent. He's very conversational. That's yeah. what it was like. There are some hosts that you can they are just like. Reading it, right? Reading it. Yeah. And he's not yeah. like that at all. He's so entertaining. He's so energetic. He loves everyone in the room. He was just having a good time, and you could tell. Right. And, you know, no snark, which no is kind of nice. And a lot of times, again, you go to a lot of these hosts, and it just, uh, it's pretty snarky. A lot of people were really surprised to see Celine Dion on stage. Oh, yes. I and mean, she's uh, dealing with that health crisis, that disease that she has. Um, a stiff person's disease. I don't know what the technical name uh, for the disease is, the medical name for it, but a lot of folks um, have been wondering how she's doing, but she appeared. By the way, I just loved her coat. Mm. Was that coat not fabulous? That mustard-colored coat? Yeah, and she was... I'm trying to remember if she was wearing Valentino. I shouldn't have said that because that might not be right. (laughs) But anyway, she's a five-time Grammy winner, and she was absolutely fabulous. Okay, tell us about Taylor Swift. She wins the album of the year. Uh huh. A lot of people didn't think she'd win for that. I didn't even think she was going to win for that. Ah. I was actually shocked. I don't honestly. I don't know why she won, because there were other albums in that category that that were you know a little bit. Who would you have picked? Olivia Rodrigo. Oh yeah, she yeah that she was... got snubbed the whole way through. Yeah. Olivia's my second in command. Like it's Taylor and then it's Olivia, and I wanted Olivia to win so bad because the way that she writes for her age is like years ahead of her. Yeah. So I don't understand why she didn't win, and her whole marketing campaign around her album, it was off the charts. It was everywhere. You didn't see Midnight's everywhere. That's yeah. Taylor's album. Yeah. It, but I don't know. I think she got snubbed. But that's okay. Well, hopefully uh, that'll be rectified at some point here. Now, I, we should say Taylor made history. First person ever to win an album of the year four times uh, for Midnight's. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, we're talking about the Beatles, Elvis, whoever you want to name. She's won uh, four times here for, for that. And that's a huge honor. Everybody looks to the album of the year. Also, Tracy Chapman. That's Ooh. another one, an intergenerational thing. Ooh. Tracy Chapman took the stage with uh, country singer Luke Combs. And, you know, he's a huge star, but 
hello, it was all about Tracy. Oh, yeah, it was. And he let her have it. He yeah. was just like, there you go. I'm going pr- yep. to bring you in because yeah. I love you and I love this song. I'm going to bring you on stage, but this is like your moment. And then he was just there enjoying every second of it. When she was singing, he was singing along right with her, but like away from the microphone. Like yeah. He let her have that moment and it was beautiful. And oh my God, it's so, it really stole my heart. And he and he should have because uh, Tracy Chapman has a lot of respect from a lot of people, a lot of fans, obviously, and a lot of people in the industry. I thought it was uber cool that she came on stage with just a pair of blue jeans and a black blouse. I mean, it had a little glitter around, I think, the sleeve. But that was, I mean, she was, her hair was just pulled back. I mean, it was like her voice, her music was what was speaking last night. Mm-hmm. I, I I absolutely love that. And then Joni Mitchell. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was another one. I'm sorry, my generation was like, yay, Joni, Joni, go get it. So um, so uh, 55 years after its first release, Both Sides Now, she performed uh, that on stage last night. Did you have any emotional connection to that or not? Um, So I'm going to say, like, I don't have an emotional connection to her. I do have an emotional connection to the song. Like, what a beautiful story. Yeah. What in the world? Like, if you didn't feel something from that, you don't have a heart. I heard a lot of folks this morning commenting about this and talking about how it really brought tears to their eyes. I mean, she's, I think she's 80. Mm -hmm. I don't know if she's over 80, but she's 80. She was seated in a chair. Um, She, you know, obviously she's been facing some health issues herself. Uh, but a lot of people, a lot of other musicians joined her uh, around her to congratulate her and talk about, you know, talk with her. And this was an extremely, extremely emotional moment for for her as well. Uh, Billy Joel performed, but I have to, you know, I mentioned Billy Joel. But what's funny is we've just talked about women artists. It was all about women last oh, night. Oh, yeah. Was, right? Like, screw the guys. Sorry, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, they are really dumb. I mean, between... Uh, Rodrigo mm-hmm. um, and uh, Taylor Swift. And I mean, these women are absolutely killing it and dominating the industry right now. And I'm proud. We should be. Well, you know, a lot. It, it's a long time coming. I mean, there's been a, you know, there was a long time where women really weren't recognized for all that they could do in the music industry. Uh, it was kind of funny, though, that Billy Joel, Joel performed. It was like kind of like a token thing. Like, OK, we'll have Billy Joel perform. Yeah. OK, whatever. <laughs> anyway, it was a great show. That's what um, even though I was just dipping in and out and just kind of seeing some of the highlights, it was a great show. And I wanted to mention that because there were so many great performances and how many terrible award shows are out are out there. And everybody said, oh, no, this one was great. As also said by our Danielle Mason. Oh, yeah. We'll be back here on WJR's Focus in just a minute. Be caller 9 at 1-800-859-0WJR to win a pair of tickets to experience Aretha's Gold. Be there as Classic Albums Live and its roster of A-list musicians bring Aretha Franklin's greatest hits to the Coliseum stage at Caesars Windsor on Sunday, February 25th. For a bonus chance to win, text the keyword Aretha, A-R-E-T-H-A, to 800-859-0957. Our official rules are at WJR.com. Tickets are available to purchase at Ticketmaster.com. 
Com. Good luck, everybody. We have a bit of breaking news this hour. King Ch- uh, Charles has been diagnosed with a form of cancer. This is according to Buckingham Palace, which uh, made the announcement a very short time ago. Now, uh, they also go on to say that during the king's recent hospital procedure for benign prostate enlargement, a separate issue of concern.